Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by Professor Paul Kander for part 2 of our conversation about his new book, Pop Culture and the Dark Side of the American Dream, Conmen, Gangsters, Drug Lords and Zombies. Now, from the point of view of Breaking Bad, you can get back to the past of the Western before all the institutions that are now failing, but there's no changing those things themselves. Walter White transforms himself into an image of what he thinks corporations are doing to him, and he creates his own corporation. Now, what if you could, in a situation of institutional failure, where technology might be your enemy and destroy you, what would happen if you could actually change all this political arrangement that's based on institutions and technology? What would you get then? What kind of Western would you get then? This is how we get to another one of these dark stories that reveal so much about America, about our character, about our desires, The Walking Dead. Yes, that's a perfect setup. I went into The Walking Dead not really interested in it. I just couldn't understand why this show had become so popular. And I just finished my book, Invisible Hand, in popular culture. I thought, well, what do I do next? Why is everyone watching this show? And so I think I picked it up in the second season and bought DVDs and saw it from the first season. And what just really was a paradox to me is what's the element of wish fulfillment? Generally, people watch a show with some kind of fantasy in mind so that you could say with Breaking Bad, the fantasy element is my whole middle-class life is so boring, what would be like to break out of it? So I couldn't understand what was the element of wish fulfillment in The Walking Dead, and then suddenly it dawned on me, I was watching some of these other apocalyptic shows falling skies, revolution, and I realized that no matter how bad things were in the zombie apocalypse, at least the federal government was dead. Uh, that, That people were so fed up with the federal government and all the bureaucracy in the tale that one dream was, okay, let's be invaded by aliens, let's be overrun by zombies, but at least those guys in Washington will be off our back. And that is the common element to these stories. Whatever the apocalyptic event is, it brings down the federal government and it forces people to fall back on local resources and their own resources. It gives them a chance to see could they survive without their institutions. So that, I mean, one of the keys to this to me was, again, the issue of medicine. And it is fascinating to see how much it pervades modern culture and a frustration with institutionalized medicine. So this happens in Falling Skies. It happens in Walking Dead. You've lost the big city hospitals. Indeed, in Walking Dead, they've turned into horror shows. They've been overrun by zombies. They were the first line of defense against the zombie plague, and they failed. And it's really terrible now. You don't have CAT scan machines. You don't have X-ray machines. You don't have heart specialists and brain specialists. What do you get? Falling Skies is a pediatrician. In Walking Dead, it's a veterinarian, Herschel, in the second season. And, you know, that seems like a terrible come down. What a horror that you've lost all the modern technology of medicine. But what you've gotten in exchange is a family doctor who makes house calls. I have a hard time explaining to my students that when I was a child in the 1950s, a doctor would come to your house. He'd carry a little bag, 
the most high-tech thing, and it was a stethoscope. But he'd come in and treat you at home. Now, of course, you're dying from some disease. You have to somehow get to a hospital to get cured, and you're dead on the way over. But the notion about medical care in these shows is it has become personalized. So again, in Falling Skies, it's a pediatrician, but at least she's your doctor, and she's your friend, and she lives with you in your little community, and the same in Walking Dead. Little Carl Grimes is shot, and they learn that the guy they're staying with, Herschel's a doctor. They don't know at first he's a veterinarian, but the fact is he's there for the kid. He stays up all night with him, makes sure he's all right. I mean, this is emblematic of these shows in general. They take us out of an institutionalized world that is impersonal and in fact presented as uncaring and takes you into a world where medicine would be personal again. It was like Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, that TV show. The idea that you would know who your doctor is and that doctor would have a personal relationship with you, it comes up in education in these shows. The kids no longer can go to the uh, high-powered educational institutions. Falling Skies takes place in the Boston area, for example. In fact, the main character is a history professor at Boston University. But what happens now in the absence of the schooling system? Homeschooling. The parents have to teach their own children. Again, that happens in Falling Skies. It happens in Walking Dead. And it reunites the family. There's a sense in all these shows that we have been outsourcing our lives to institutions. Institutions teach our kids. Institutions take care of our bodies. But the advantage of the apocalyptic event is it throws us back on our own resources and, again, local resources. These shows are a kind of exercise in federalism, the notion that government is best when it's closest to the people. In the show Falling Skies, they call themselves the Minutemen, and it's a kind of return to the spirit of the uh, old Massachusetts militias. The show Revolution, I think it lasted only two seasons, but I liked it. It basically used the theme of secession. After the apocalyptic event, in this case, all electricity had failed, the U.S. broke up into six different republics. And again, the notion was power is now close to the people. It seems prophetic in retrospect. Now states like California are talking about secession. It seems so ridiculous when the show Revolution had it, but the show culminated, and this is almost too good to be true, in a war between the Republic of Texas and the Republic of California. And Texas won. That kind of... <laughs> save the world. But I mean, what could be more emblematic of our politics today than a war between the Republic of Texas and the Republic of California? We're almost seeing it played out in a world thing. These shows can be uncanny in that respect. Everyone thinks they're written by idiots, but they're really written by smart people who often detect trends ahead of time. And so in a way, all these shows are about secession one reason or another, people are thrown back on their local resources and therefore get some control over their lives. I think all these works we've been talking about, including Breaking Bad, reflect a pervasive sense in the American public that they've lost control of their lives to remote institutions. You know, you used to have a bank in your town, and of course most people are stupid and think when they deposit their money it stays in a vault in that bank on Main Street, but it's being lent out to Sri Lanka. Uh, 
But indeed, a lot of these shows reflect the fears about globalization and multinational corporations. You see that in Breaking Bad, where this multinational corporation, Madrigal, turns out to be behind the drug operations, or at least financing them. But in any case, in Walking Dead, we see these pretty ordinary people, kind of meek and letting other people control them, and now they're thrust on their own resources, and it's a Darwinian thing. If they don't shape up, they die. But if they do shape up, they become much stronger. Now, one of the things that's most pervasive in these shows is guns. And Hollywood may be ostensibly opposed to guns, but its shows seem to celebrate gun ownership. In fact, in these shows, anybody who wants gun control is evil. Yes. When they take away your guns, they're taking away your livelihood. It's like an old western in that sense, and particularly in Walking Dead, any time our band of survivors comes to a community that promises them peace and prosperity, the first thing they want to do is take away their guns. And that is shown to have a horrible effect in these shows, and it's seen as the most tyrannical impulse is to take away people's guns. And we see children learning to use guns, and also women. There's actually a very strong feminist component in The Walking Dead and several of these other shows. A number of the women in the show, this character named Andrea in Walking Dead in particular, she was an abused wife. Carol's another example in The Walking Dead. And they're at first very meek and at a loss under these apocalyptic conditions, but they learn to use weapons and they become real badasses, to use the technical term. (laughs) At first learn to kill zombies, but then learn to kill other human beings when necessary. And it really is images of female empowerment. And particularly The Walking Dead shows many women moving into positions of authority in the communities that form by learning to be independent. And again, that's the Wild West component to the show. I first kind of realized it when the show Talking Dead, which is a discussion show that airs after Walking Dead, Kevin Smith, the director, referred to this kid Carl Grimes as Wyatt Twerp. Which I thought was just hilarious, because at one point his father gives him his deputy sheriff's hat, and the kid walks around proudly wearing the hat. His little sister now is wearing the hat, because alas, Carl is no longer with us. But in any case, why a twerp? And I suddenly realized that, yeah, this show is drawing upon all the techniques and themes of the Western. It's funny, once you realize something like this, I said to myself, yeah, well, in the first season, Carl is torn between his more conventional father and another policeman who is really suspicious and seems too violent, but Carl drifts towards this other character. Then I realized the character's name is Shane. It's Shane. They were recreating Shane and the little kid's choice between his respectable middle-class farmer and the gunfighter. I mean, they were quite self-conscious about it. And there are so many ways in which Western motifs come up in the show. Maybe the most famous sight in the show, the great iconic moment is Rick Grimes riding in on a horse into Atlanta like an old Western hero. And indeed, in several of these shows, particularly Revolution Walking Dead, the horse suddenly becomes much more prominent in the post-apocalyptic world. Now, in a certain sense, that's ridiculous. A horse is a liability. You have to feed it instead of feeding on it. 
what would triumph in the post-apocalyptic world is the bicycle. Of course. You don't have to feed a bicycle. You just have to ride the bicycle. But these shows are just overpopulated with horses because they're Westerns. In other words, it's a symbolic, not an economic reason why you suddenly got the horses. It was really, it was really in thinking about The Walking Dead that I first realized how much it was a postmodern Western and therefore how central the Western is to all of American popular culture. The zombies have taken the role of the unfortunate Indians in the typical Western. Uh, you can shoot zombies the way, uh, unfortunately, the cowboys were able to shoot the Indians in the old Western. And in many ways, the heart of The Walking Dead is Wagon Train, yes. uh, both the John Ford movie and the uh, later TV series. With Lord Bond, come to think of it, which is a nice link to John Ford movies. But the typical plots in The Walking Dead are the typical plots of a wagon train story encountering the zombies, is encountering the Indians. You think you've gotten to a safe military post that's already been overrun. There's some stray or straggler holding up the wagon train. You have to keep it going along. Someone's been lost. You have to send out a search party. I mean, it's like every plot in The Walking Dead can be traced back to the wagon train stories. So again, that gives it some continuity. And again, the show takes us back to a Western ethic of self-reliance and independence. And that's reflected in the need to have guns. You cannot rely on institutions to defend you anymore. You've got to fall back on your own resources. And any institutionalized community is a real threat in Walking Dead. Season after season, they've run into one promised paradise after another, which has turned out to be hell because the person offering you peace and prosperity is really some kind of tyrant, whether it's the governor or most recently uh, Negan. Now I guess we're dealing with the whispers in the show. They're running out of wagon train plots. <laughs> but to me, the show really, again, had touched with tremendous frustration in the American people that they'd lost control of their lives. And so in many ways, the show rehabilitates old images of heroism. For example, maybe the most popular hero on the show is Daryl, who is a redneck. Yes. And we first see rednecks in the form of his older brother, Merle, who's a real creep, a disgusting character. But gradually, Daryl emerges as a hero, and he's a hero of self-reliance. He's a pure Western figure. He's the tracker. He can track down the zombies and track down enemies, but he's a loner. He uses a crossbow, and he rides a motorcycle, another American myth of the road. I mean, in a wave, Walking Dead is the ultimate road story and draws upon all these archetypes, which are very much in tension with middle-class security. Indeed, what we see again and again in uh, Walking Dead is obsession with security is the surest way to be insecure. And the show, if you think you're safe, if you think a wall will protect you, it won't. The only thing that will protect you is a gun or a crossbow or a samurai sword, in the case of Michonne, that you've learned to use on your own. So it really is a kind of attempt to recuperate the oldest form of American pop culture heroism, namely that of the Western hero. Yeah, as we said, these are times of great dissatisfaction with institutions. Some of our public institutions are at historic lows in approval, and you don't even need to check those numbers to realize that people really are mistrustful and in certain ways fed up. And as we saw with Walter White, Breaking Bad asks if somebody is so dissatisfied, that's because at some level he thinks he should be in charge. What kind of ruler would that man be? 
In this other case, in The Walking Dead, it's not a guy, it's a community, which changes the question somewhat, since a man cannot live by himself, but the community could be self-standing, could be independent. And so in The Walking Dead, you get this sense, okay, if as Americans we're so annoyed, we're so angry at the government, could we do better? Are we really the race of heroes we think we are? These guys are every man. Every man and every woman and every children, of course, and therefore they are representative of America, but they are also an examination of American character in light of this question of being self-subsistent. Could we really deal with all the things that would scare us when once we get rid of all of the things that merely annoy us? This allows the story to examine the dialectic of freedom and government just as the Western allowed John Ford. This community is free when it's on the road. Whenever it stops somewhere because they need things, because they run out of stuff, because there's this temptation to get more safety, then you have to establish government and that creates terrible, terrible problems. Do you want to live under the tyranny of the world, which is not all that provident, or under the tyranny of men, who aren't all that merciful. These things are juxtaposed season after season. They're on the road and they stop, as you said, and therefore allow people to look through these stories and figure out what is it that we want out of freedom and what would it take to match it with what we can get out of government. Yeah, it really is quite interesting politically. Again, it exposes a kind of fault line in the American dream. On the one hand, the American dream is a dream of community. On the other hand, it's a dream of self-sufficiency. It's an idea of living in a middle-class suburb and being part of a larger community and going to the PTA meetings and uh, the Rotary Club meetings and being friendly with neighbors and so on. But there's something very unsatisfying about that, stifling, clawing about that. So on the other hand, there's always this American dream of lighting out for the West, as in uh, Huckleberry Finn, going to the frontier, retreating to nature in the forest, not having to be dependent upon anyone else. And that is played out in the kind of logic of the Walking Dead series, which is just as you say, in some ways they are happiest as Americans on the road. It's no accident that in the early seasons, one of the main characters in the show was an RV camper owned by Dale. The RV is the spirit of America, and you could see that in the show. Americans are a mobile people. Again, that goes all the way back to Huck Finn, where Huck Finn can pretend he's Tom Sawyer among relatives because he's so far away from home that these relatives don't even know what Tom Sawyer looks like. And that, again, that's a kind of American dream of pure mobility that you could get a fresh start anytime you wanted. But as I say in my book, if you can get a fresh start, it can be a false start. And if you can assume a new identity, you can be a con man in doing that. And so we see that again in The Walking Dead, that when you're on the road, you have the freedom you want. Daryl particularly just wants to be on the road with his motorcycle. But on the other hand, there's this desire to settle down, to be able to raise children, to raise crops. That's a great temptation in the show. And it often leads them astray into a community that demands that they surrender their freedom. 
Sometimes the community is obviously threatening when you discover, for example, that they're cannibals, as happens in one sequence. But very often the community is quite attractive. There was a wonderful sequence set in Alexandria, Virginia, which was perfect image of the Beltway bubble. This is a community that was set up by the government in case of some kind of crisis. And there's all these sort of government types, including a congresswoman from Ohio, who are living in this community. And it's a kind of ideal Washington suburb community. They have gun control. They have solar power. They ban capital punishment. There's a gay couple living there. Everything you'd want in blue state America. And then our red state rednecks wander in. And the first thing they have to do is surrender their guns. They go to these parties where people are talking about their risotto recipes and drinking Chardonnay. And it's just, to these people, the zombie apocalypse hasn't even happened. And it turns out they're completely wrong for that reason. And our group has to save them. Fortunately, Rick Grimes holds on to his gun and they're able to get their guns when they need them to hold off the zombies when they invade the community. But it's really quite a remarkable sequence there that I think captured the American image of its Washington, D.C. elite, that they're living isolated from the troubles that average ordinary Americans are experiencing, that they have their own set of values, and above all, that they look down on the average American person. There's a marvelous sequence in it when the gay couple in Alexandria have Daryl over to dinner. He thinks he's eating spaghetti, but they've, of course, served him pasta. And he starts slurping it up in his redneck fashion, and his hosts just look at him with utter contempt, like, look at this barbarian. And few episode later, Daryl is saving them from the zombies. This person they looked down upon with contempt turned out to have a good side to his barbarian qualities, that he's the guy you want to rely on. Also to rely on to fix their motorcycle, as it turns out. I just find it amazing that creators of the show essentially were thinking through precisely the red state, blue state divide, including its cultural aspect. I was very glad my writing of my book was delayed sufficiently for me to include these episodes in the chapter on The Walking Dead. Yeah, the Alexandra episode is unusually thrilling. For once, our band of survivors is not confronted with hell on earth, they're confronted with paradise, and as you say in the book, various characters realize immediately, like itching on their skins, like hair standing up on your arms in a defensive mood, there's something wrong with this much peace, there's something wrong with this much of the sunny side up attitude. As you said, this portrays the American class divide, essentially, and its political implications. It's very easy to have happy opinions when you're in a social class where there's no danger. Now, what happens to these other people who have to fight for their lives, which is, of course, exaggerated, but not all that much. There really are places in America where you do have to fear for your life. So this distinction that anyone who pays attention to America would notice, although it's not made much of in the media or even in our entertainment, is for once thematized in the show. And it becomes obvious that it takes a certain degree of suffering. It takes fear and the intelligent dealing with fear to develop the kinds of virtues you need to be able to face off danger when it comes and indeed to foresee that it will come. Or otherwise, you end up with this sort of fantasy of an order that enforces itself, where you don't need to deal either with dissent or with uncertainty, because you're pretty sure that things are going to go on the way they have gone on. And just the irony of saying that 
for people who are sufficiently rich and liberal and connected to the government, not even the apocalypse would touch them. I mean, in the post-2008 America, that's really a glorious bit of storytelling. Yeah, just in the background in this Alexandria community, there's a real estate sign that says, home starting at $800,000. And it's such a nice touch because that tells you, you know, this community is off limits for the vast majority of Americans, even though it does have solar power. (laughs) And uh, Tova Felchu plays the congresswoman named Deanna. And it's just a perfect example of the smugness of American politicians and the self-righteousness of American politicians that, you know, we're a community that honors all voices. And then the first time Rick Rimes raises questions about their safety, she says, we don't allow language like that here. Uh, just this great moment of political correctness in the town. And she will come to suffer for it. A madman who Rick had been trying to control ends up shooting Deanna's husband. And she has to order Rick to shoot the murderer of her husband. Do it, Rick, she says. And it's a great cathartic moment in the sequence there that she's come to recognize the value of this, uh, again, barbarian Rick Grimes. There's a sequence at one of these cocktail parties where you can just see the placid character of these Alexander dwellers. And again, they're just trading recipes. One of them asks Michonne, one of the errands here, could you slaughter a boar for me? I'm making a prosciutto recipe. It's just, it's so perfect. Uh, And then you see these people would have been dead if it hadn't been for Rick Grimes and the bunch. It's really, I I mean, again, my whole experience with studying pop culture is that academics have far too much contempt for the people who create pop culture. They think they're all fools. When you actually look at these shows, at least the best of them, and I try to concentrate on the best of them, they're really exceedingly well-written and well-produced, and they have a lot to tell us about America today, about America in the past, about political questions. I say that all these shows are examining what's known in political philosophy as the state of nature. Yes. The way Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau tried to understand the human political condition was imagining a situation without a government. And then you see how viable it was and You know, Hobbes famously sees life as nasty, poor, solitary, brutish, and short. And so you have to do anything to get out of the state of nature and accept any form of government. Interesting thing about John Locke is he made the state of nature sound a little more viable so that it took a while before we needed to get out of it. And therefore, Locke is very much in the spirit of America, or America is very much in the spirit of Locke, that we need limited government. We needed to solve certain problems, but we still can resist tyranny. And I think that's very much at the heart of uh, Walking Dead, that there are limits to government. If it means being ruled by the governor in season three, I think it is, or by Negan in far too many seasons, that no, we won't accept that. We'll sooner take what appears to be anarchy than a government that's tyrannical. And again, in light of what you said earlier, there's so much about tyranny in The Walking Dead. It has given so many portraits of tyrants, and even Rick one season, I think it's two, he proclaims the Rick Tatorship. Uh, <laughs> that democracy is not working, yes. and I gotta give all the orders. And that was a ominous moment. Fans were upset by And later, Rick renounced the Rick Tatorship when he realized he was making mistakes when he was making all the decisions himself. So again, the fact that they should speak of the Rick Tatorship. So these are knowledgeable people. They're literate. I'm not just making these issues up. 
we're not just reading this stuff into these series. I believe we're reading this material out of these series. Now, I don't know that these people could formulate things in these terms, but still, I think they are using the medium of television to think through some very serious issues and in ways that we don't normally associate with Hollywood. So I was very glad to write this book, tie these things together. Yeah, it's not often that we get the opportunity to think about things in this way, partly because we're used to seeing things piecemeal, and partly because entertainment comes with certain assumptions that often prove to be wrong. Our storytellers really do have heads on their shoulders. They have to plan quite a lot and in advance. They can't just make it up on the spot. Further to get the effect they need out of an audience, to make you gasp now, cry later, laugh later on, and so forth, they have to know what it is that the audience fears and what it does not fear and how to deal with it, to weave these psychological reactions and the story arc of a season, and then of course more seasons after that, is not easy work. To some extent they have to look at what it is that's going on that people would be interested in, things that we should be talking about but aren't talking about because that's how the media works, we don't talk about it. But if we were to do it in a non-confrontational medium, in a non-partisan environment, which is what entertainment does, then people would be along for the ride, people would be interested in finding out more about this story and about these characters because to an extent they would recognize themselves in those characters and they are interested in themselves, both at the level of the society and what we're going through now and at a deeper level about our character and about national character, there's a lot of self-knowledge on offer that ultimately makes these things memorable and worthwhile or if they lack it, they disappear. Yes, I met Vince Gilligan. He came to University of Virginia and presented one Breaking Bad episode, and he spoke about it the way a craftsman would. I mean, how everything was put together, and he talked about how at the beginning of the season he has a team of writers, what's called a writer's room, and they would plan out the whole season. Each episode would be planned out in advance, what the sequence would be, so that they could develop an arc, as it's called, for the season, and they'd have each episode mapped out. It's a kind of five act structure, which is to say it's room for the five commercials, and then they'd assign each episode to a different writer, that person would have to write up the script, and then they'd bring it back to the writer's room, and, and as we say in creative writing classes, they would workshop it. So a lot of thought goes in, a lot of pre-planning, a lot of execution of the scripts, and above all, revisions. Uh, I've discussed this method of creation, particularly in television, but movies as well, and it doesn't look like our romantic model of the solitary genius creating things solely out of his head. That model itself is untrue to how the romantic poets operated. Many of them were collaborators, Wordsworth and Coleridge, Byron Shelley, for example, but it certainly doesn't work for television, where as a collaborative medium, it can really work. Too many cooks don't always spoil the broth. In fact, they can make it get better and better as they have to test their ideas against each other. So it took me a long time to figure out how it was possible for television to be so good. And people would challenge me and say, well, do you think Vince Gilligan was really thinking of that when he wrote this? And I said, first of all, he didn't write it. Someone else wrote it, and no, Vince Gilligan wasn't thinking of it. A team of writers was thinking upon it, and by just talking it out, making revisions, for example, the ending of Breaking Bad is fabulous, just the right ending. What a way, perfect way for Walter White to die. But they considered so many alternatives for that, and, you know, in interviews they talk about it. 
that you see it's a process. Not everything is best created in a single moment of advanced inspiration. Working on a script, especially by a team of talented writers, can really improve it. So I wholly endorse what you were saying about what we can learn from watching popular culture. But we could also enjoy it at the same time. Yeah, none of this stuff works at all if it is not, first of all, intriguing and delightful to audiences. But to keep people coming back for year after year, you'd have to have something worthwhile to offer. And to expect that any of this will be remembered, you'd have to be even more ambitious than that. And having a number of people work on this, not just because over time they get better at it and more confident, but also because they have to agree with each other to be able to work together. They're thinking these things out and they're arranging them in a way that makes sense to them. It's not just a fluke. You have to come up with a certain plausible agreement that you can work out. All of this stuff suggests that these people are by no stretch of the imagination morons and they're not throwing the dice either. They have to think a lot about how stories work, what audiences want, but also what stories they have to tell and how to fit. You know, success is rare and unpredictable, of course, but a lot of it is tied up with insight. You'd have to be gullible to think that these sorts of really dark shows don't have anything to do with the mood in America. And of course, especially when they have such important Western elements, the notion that this doesn't speak to the national character and to the popular taste, which in certain ways hasn't changed over hundreds of years, that would be incredibly gullible. It takes a certain narrowness of mind to deny the dignity of thinking that these guys do when they come up with these shows. Criticism has to a large extent been very bad, either too narrow-minded or too snobbish, as you mentioned in the case of academia, never willing to learn from these guys what it is that they have seen about America and what they think it means. Yes, I try to be naive. Uh, I don't come to these shows with preconceptions about what they're about. I think a lot of so-called sophisticated popular culture critics come particularly with some kind of Marxist agenda that they want to read into the show. Again, with Walking Dead, I just approached it like a wide-eyed kid. Why in the world is this zombie narrative popular? And then I realized what it was appealing to and that there really is some kind of uh, emotional intellectual core to it that it's dealing with the issue of human independence and self-reliance. And I think Walking Dead does it best of all these shows, but again, I discuss a number of other ones, and there have been shows that have come into existence since. So I'm very proud, actually, to have gone into popular culture with the resources of a Shakespearean critic. Now, again, Shakespeare is better than all of this, but Shakespeare is better than everything. He's better than Greek tragedy. He's better than the Russian novel. He's better than all the great things that have ever been accomplished in culture because he's Shakespeare. But I think it's reasonable to uh, approach this material with Shakespeare as a measure. Again, that's why I wrote a chapter on Macbeth in conjunction with Breaking Bad. And I think Breaking Bad holds up pretty well to the comparison and using Macbeth as a model can help us understand Breaking Bad. So I've been hoping to raise the level of the criticism of movies and television by giving them more credit. Now, people have been giving credit to movies for decades now. It's only recently that people are becoming to realize that television is a sophisticated medium. And indeed, it's only recently, basically the age of cable, that it has become as sophisticated a medium as it is today.
Yeah, it attracts a lot of talent now, and what people thought of as the talent in the movies has migrated, including, of course, very famous actors and a lot of money, into television. That by itself explains why there are more opportunities and why there is more effort put into making this stuff worthwhile, rather than just, you know, the half hour you'd spend once a week to kill off time. There's a lot simply in the way we think about entertainment and what entertains us that has moved things in this direction and has attracted even, of course, famous directors or famous writers to move into television, at least on a temporary basis, because you always have to go in search of an audience if you have something to say. And right now, the audience is here rather than somewhere else. The opportunity to tell people the things that you think you have discovered, this is where the game is played, this is where you have to go. All of this stuff is leading to better storytelling and therefore to more storytelling about America. Broadly speaking, popular culture, when it rises to a high enough level, is really a concern with what's going on in America. What have we been through? What are we going through? What are we going to do? And in The Walking Dead, you see continuously, season after season, in different settings, different temptations, will American character resist? If you take the technology and the institutions out of it, are we still Americans? If we are Americans, when once we have to deal with this entire new problem, will we stay American? Do we have to turn to tyranny? Do we have to learn from the Hobbesian state of nature, which is a state of war, that the absolute authority of a mortal god, a Leviathan, is necessary, or is any such claim to be a mortal god an insanity of a tyrant like Nigan? Yes. And of course, America has always had a very strong Rousseauian streak, a certain love for the sweet sentiment of existence, the love of nature, the love of the ruggedness of the American continent, for example, and hence the love of being on the road, just experiencing things without thought of the future. And so a lot of that goes into the show as well, that if we're in an age where we're not quite sure what makes us American or how to deal with it, and life is both boring and pre-programmed to the point where it becomes annoying, you could think beyond the summer vacation, you could think to another world where for all the terrors and the dangers, you do on the other hand have this great delight in just being human. Yes, I think, again, the way you formulated it is exactly right. Can we still be Americans without our technology institutions? And in a way, The Walking Dead flips the question. Because of our technology institutions, were we losing our sense of being Americans? And do we need to be liberated, particularly from the institutions, but also to some extent the technology, so that we could once again recapture what America historically has stood for? which in many ways is epitomized by the tales of the Wild West and the rugged John Wayne hero of the American and Western. So interesting because so many people have claimed the Western is dead, and in fact it simply has been resurrected in a whole series of other genres, science fiction, zombie stories, and so on. Because it really is the spirit of America, and let's hope the spirit of America never dies. There's no irony in the idea that pop culture would help the spirit of America be revived and live on. I've never had contempt for the popularity of pop culture. It's something I actually admire because I think it's a form of vitality in culture. Yeah, and telling stories that help people figure out what it is that they're going through also involves a certain form of consent. Popularity is the entertainment equivalent of what in politics we call consent. Popularity is like voting. 
not that it has the same legal political status, but in certain ways it is deeper because it's about what people love without having the benefits of hating the other guy. We couldn't get through any season of voting if we didn't mostly hate the other candidate. That's a great spur to political activity and decision. Whereas political education in the sense of entertainment is not the same. If you don't love the story, nobody can make you love it. If the other story you hate doesn't mean you love this one. It speaks directly to people's beliefs about what it is to be American, what trouble we're in, and where might we look for a way to deal with it. Yeah, although it's interesting, people are so locked into political attitudes that they never can understand why you don't love a show they love, and they'll often hate the show you love, and disputes can get pretty contentious. I, I think it does involve the sense of the underlying ideology of the shows, and that's where people can get all wrapped up in disputes. But it is funny that people don't seem to be willing to leave it at, well, you like that show and I like this one. Because I'm a professional, people are always coming at me with, why don't you write about this show, or don't you know about that show, or why do you think Breaking Bad is better than this? And for the fun of it, I'll argue with people. Sometimes I just say, give me a break, it's just a television show. <laughs> yeah, there's no way around how opinionated being American is. And that indeed will involve quarreling about essentially everything. But at the same time, there are, of course, the loyal followings that these shows create. And not just people. Other people who become storytellers, grow up on shows or learn from shows in a kind of friendly competition or a spirit of emulation that can lead to further storytelling later on. So there is a lot of learning being done at the same time as the complaining or the contest of opinions. That's show business, and I'm hoping it's what sells books. Yes. People want to see my opinions, buy my book. There's a lot of opinions in it. One thing I'm proudest of in the book is that I write about the Godfather movies, the two greatest movies of all time, and Breaking Bad, the greatest TV show of all time. And if you want to see me justify that, take a look at the book. Yes, so the book is called Pop Culture and the Dark Side of the American Dream conmen, gangsters, drug lords, and zombies. You can just go on Amazon and buy it, find it in a bookstore somewhere, it's out from the University of Kentucky Press, and it is now available for your perusal. If you love these shows, you'll have a great opportunity to think through them all over again and enjoy them all over again. If you've never been sure whether you should, well, this is what you need to read to get you started. And of course, it will show you why it is that sometimes we're not satisfied with the American dream or we think there might be more and perhaps better. It's a big thing in our culture and it's only going to get bigger now. And it's a very timely book in as much as it examines our tendency towards tragedy. We're mostly happy-go-lucky people, but there are times when we get really dark and serious. And it is better to deal with it through pop culture than to scream at the top of our lungs, of course. So you should get this book, read it, and then listen to our other conversations, past and future. Sir, thanks a lot for joining me. It's been a pleasure to have what is, I think, our longest conversation now. We've only covered two shows, Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead. But it was a pleasure talking to you and to learn from you. I've, I've read the book, but it was still a thrilling conversation. So I am sure that it will be the same for our audience. Thanks a lot. 
Well, thank you for having me on the show. And as always, our conversations are very stimulating and I learn new things. I got a whole new take on Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. And it's a book I've taught for many years and never saw what you saw in it. So it's been great for me too. And thanks again. Thanks, guys. All the best.